Welcome to Transformation. I'm farm broadcaster Don Wick with the latest in our podcast series. Transformation is made possible through a partnership of the Red River Farm Network, Linder Farm Network, and Minnesota Department of Agriculture. Numerous stakeholders have also provided support, including the Minnesota Farm Bureau Foundation and West Central Initiative Fund. All of us in agriculture seem to wear a, a lot of hats, and our guest, Teresa Bentz, is no exception. Teresa is a farmer. She has an off-farm job. She's a wife. She's a parent. Teresa, uh, how do you keep all those balls in the air? You know, that's a good question because I don't think, I think the important thing to say is that there are times that I'm really good at keeping all the balls in the air and I'm, and it's seamless and I'm really rocking it. And then there are times where the balls drop and it's okay that they drop. <laughs> You have to be able to give yourself the ability to say that that's okay, right? Yep, exactly. I'm not superwoman, but I do the best I can. Again, we talked about balance. Maybe tell us a little bit more about your your background. You've got kind of a unique story, Teresa. So I grew up in the cities, and I, you know, did the normal thing. I went to school and and um, went into healthcare and got a good job. Um, I taught at St. Catherine University for a while in occupational therapy. And then when we had our first child, we kind of realized how unstable the food market is and how, um, you know, like city life is just, it's great for some people, but I just really wanted some space. And I wanted our kids to kind of have that slower lifestyle than I had as a child. and. So me and my husband started looking for land and it took us about two and a half years. As many, you know, um, new young farmers, land access is just the hardest part. We're lucky enough to find a piece of land right outside of Northfield, Minnesota. So we have 40 acres and it's really considered like subprime egg. It's, it's all on a hillside. We have like an 11 acres tillable, but the rest of it is just wooded and marshy and hillside. And when we got here, we thought, okay, well, what are we going to do? Are we going to, you know, grow the vegetable route and and ha dig up a bunch of land and turn it into garden plots? Um, but I'm not really good at growing vegetables. And there were a lot of veg veggie farmers in the area. And what I really was focused on was raising my own meat because then I knew what went into the animal, I knew the lifestyle that the animal had, and I could guarantee that whatever I'm eating is really nutritious. So I said, well, heck, let's get a couple sheep and let's call it a, let's start there. So, so we went and we bought two sheep from a lady, not knowing anything about sheep. It was just a learning experience from then on. You know, we, we had the two sheep and then they didn't die in the first year, which was pretty surprising, the first farmers. And then the next year we bought three sheep and we had lambs and, you know, it's like the whole cycle started. Like the sheep that we have are technically a triple purpose animal. They, um, you can milk them, eat them and shear them for wool. I only knew the middle one. I only knew how to eat them. I didn't know how to milk them or shear them. By year two, we were testing out like what it was like to milk a sheep, which is not very fun at all. Um, and then we tried our hand at shearing, which again was not, we learned pretty quickly that that's a skill and we should pay a guy to do that for us. Um, and then after that, I had to figure out what to do with the wool. 
um, because the wool market just is kind of scattered and you know there's not a lot of unless you you are in it and you're big there's not a lot of like um, avenues for small shepherds to market your wool so then I found a spinning wheel in a barn and I've taught myself how to spin and and all of that and and this whole time I'm learning all of this stuff I'm raising a kiddo and and growing other meat. I mean, we do chickens and pigs and turkeys and also teaching and, and working. <laughs> Pretty amazing story. I look at most farms as generally multi-generational type of operations. It's very difficult to, to get into farming with the costs and really what it takes in, in today's agriculture. What was that like to really step through those doors? And I'm nine years in now, and I, I think that's the hardest part. Some of the the areas that I've struggled with were the grant writing and the opportunities out there are really written in the agricultural language. But if you studied any other language, like you know healthcare or you know science or something like that, you you just don't speak it. And so I would apply for grants and they would deny me. And I and then I sat down with a good friend and she was like, well, you're speaking all the wrong language. You're saying the wrong terms. So that was really hard. I think was what was hard for us too was that a lot of our goals for the farm and the land don't really match with what like government opportunities match with. So we, with our 40 acres of woods, it's really overgrown by buckthorn and honeysuckles and prickly ash and um, dogwood bushes, which, you know, are just great. Um, and I'm sure a lot of farmers fight with buckthorn like we do. And our sheep are really great. They'll eat buckthorn and strip the bark off of it. So it's fantastic to have them out there. Um, but we wanted to bring it back to what it should look like, which is really that oak savanna. Um, and so we plant prairie restoration in wherever we go through and and cut. So we, every winter and spring we cut down big parts of the woods and get rid of the eastern red cedars and, and all the other stuff. Um, and then we plant prairie. And we, when we've tried to get grants or, or assistance in that prairie restoration piece, um, we hit a lot of roadblocks because they don't want us to graze animals on the prairie restoration. They want us to burn it or to mow it. And it's like, but the animals are, are our job, that's our income. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think I think that was that has been one of the bigger struggles. And and I, I think as a first generation farmer, there's just so much that we just didn't grow up with. And we're learning, um, you know, we're we're pretty darn like into it. So <laughs> kind of pave our own way. Working that language, I think that's an that's interesting. We, we don't often think about uh we all have our own vernacular in our, our what, whatever business we're in, but certainly in agriculture, we have every acronym and uh, uh, there's a, a culture to it as well. So coming in as a first generation farmer, that has to be uh, pretty eye-opening. Yeah, my, my husband's family, they're all dairy farmers. He's, his parents were first generation off the farm, um, but his cousins and everybody, they have dairy farms up north or giant ranches out west and they do cattle. And so like seven, eight years ago, when we said, oh, we're gonna buy sheep, they were like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think what we've seen too in the last, 
X amount of years is that that halal market has boomed and um, the immigrants have come in and the demand for lamb meat is going up again. So where did you go for that education to, to ramp up and learn really from ground zero on, on how to raise sheep and take care of uh, those 40 acres and those kind of things? Yeah, so we, we've kind of leaned heavily on our community here in Northfield because um, we do have a pretty like big um, first generation farming community, um, lots of like small sustainable little farms that are doing similar things. And so I would reach out to some of my other farmers who were doing things similarly, like, hey, I've got this big piece of land, will you take a look at it with me and help me kind of figure this out? They were always ready to help. The sheep part, the land restoration part wasn't as hard because I could work with Prairie Restoration up north and I can work with my extension office just to get like a outline of what I want to do but not have any grant funding to support that. So it's just like my income driving that. But the sheep part of it was really, really hard because a lot of the opportunity, the educational opportunities for sheep raising and, and how you, you know, learn about shepherding is geared towards kind of conventional breeds of sheep. So, you know, your Suffolk's and Dorset's and the ones that are that are there for you raise them and you get the meat and maybe you sell the wool to the larger like wool pool or the shearer takes it away and you get a small commodity check. But there wasn't a lot of people in our area who were raising primitive or heritage breeds like what I have. Most people who look at my sheep think they're, they're goats because they they look different. They don't look like a Suffolk or a Dorset. They have horns and they have crazy colors and long, long wool. So I, I just kind of, there's a couple of farmers in our area like Kathy Zeman and Stephen Reed from Shepherd's Way. And I just became good friends with the two of them and asked them many questions. So if, I, if a, you was having a hard time with an animal, like birthing a lamb, I would just reach out to Stephen and ask him, you know, what, what he had experienced in the past, what kind of advice. And that's what I really found is part of the, the farming community. I think we have formal education and lots of people seek that route, but I think the big part of learning and becoming a good farmer or shepherd is through connecting with your community and learning from each other. Because when we all get together, we teach each other really well. How welcoming were people when you wanted to start in farming and, and you needed that education? Was the welcome that out? I think the, the community was really welcoming. I'm kind of sandwiched in with a lot of conventional farmers. And I found that if I was part of the planning commission on in the township and got myself involved there that they saw that me and my husband weren't just city people who were buying up land and not doing anything with it and the first couple of years we had a little bit of that where the the old farmers who would who you know whose family had owned this property would come and say you know what are you guys doing or they hated that we had taken all the tillable land and turned it into prairie restoration because we were just growing weeds and we were for the first couple of years it takes five years to establish it so <laughs> but after you know i think after people saw that you know that we were really we were dedicated to it we were making a good go of it and we weren't doing anything hurtful or harmful and we were welcoming to all like 
advice. You know, if, if uh, our neighbor who does very conventional farming told me how to go out there and pull certain weeds and which weeds needed to be pulled so that my prairie looked better. And I was really thankful for that. There had to be some surprises along that path. When you look back and when you're starting as a first generation farmer, uh, what was the, the things that kind of surprised you? Oh, like, well, I think, I think a lot of, and I have a lot of good friends who are trying, they're like first generation farmers and they're trying to buy land. And that some of the things that we learned when we first started um, was that 40 acres is a lot of land when you're just getting started. Now, I wish I had 80 acres, but 40 acres is a lot of land and it needs a lot of work. You have to be present for it. Other lessons that I've learned is that with the type of sheep I have, you really have to have strong, strong fences. You know, you can't put in those like Premier One movable electric fences. They're just going to plow right through them. And another thing, like before we had a farm, we would travel and go on trips and you know, see the world. And I think when you become a farmer, it's a lifestyle change. It's a total lifestyle change. And one, you don't really want to go on a vacation because then you're around a bunch of people and it's pretty nice not being around a bunch of people. And two, your property is gorgeous. So why would you ever want to leave that? And then on top of that, you can't leave because you have the animals and they need you. And, and it's hard to find somebody who you would trust to watch your animals and do a, a good job. And then I think the final thing that we really learned, and I and we were fortunate, I think the only reason we were really successful in those early years where it is the hardest is um, because we both had good paying jobs that could support and supplement the farm as it gets going. But I think people who are purchasing land who may not have like a base foundation of income, it is super, expensive to start farming. The equipment is expensive. The infrastructure is incredibly expensive. It's time consuming. Like, like every time you start doing something, something breaks and then that costs more money. And you have to think of your farm as like the land and everything that you have as part of that business and part of your retirement fund. You know, so if I convert a, you know, a dirt floor pole shed into a cement floor workshop, Yes, it cost me a bunch of money to do this, but I've just improved the investment on my property. I've improved the overall and like worth of this piece of land that I own. Just like fencing in the whole perimeter and, you know, restoring the prairie. All of that stuff is it's time consuming, but it the, it's an investment on the future. So it's like I put money in, but eventually I'll get to pull the money back out, maybe. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I hope, <laughs> right? You know, as, as a farmer, you live and work, you raise your family all the same place. What's that dynamic like for you, especially coming into this as a first-generation farmer? So I've given up having a clean house. I think that's one of the first things I've learned. That you just, there's, it's a losing battle. You'll never, you'll never win. Um, like my husband now, at, with COVID, he works from home. So before he used to go to the cities and do his job and then come back. And then I, I would work more often. Now I've cut back um, to not working very much at all. Um, but we would both leave the farm every day, go be in the world, city food and all the goods, you know, get all that. And then we come back and congregate as a family. And it was very similar to how I think we lived our lives when we lived in the cities. But 
after COVID, that just changed everything because now everybody's home all the time. Yeah, so it, it, for me running a business, the business is everywhere in the house, you know, like I would laugh at other farmers when I would go and see their offices and it's just like a giant mess. And now I totally understand it. You know, you have you have syringes and vaccinations and paperwork and all sorts of like bizarre things all on the same desk as your computer where you're doing your your um, records of sales and you know all of that stuff. The cool thing I think for the kids and I, I'm sure many kids who grew up on farms got to see this but then if, you know if you didn't grow up on a farm this is something that you've never experienced and and now as a first generation person I get to see this I get to see my children experience this but that teamwork that the partners have to do our kiddos get to watch us run a business in our home they get to watch us go out and you know work together to move hay or to you know whatever we're doing it's always like a joint venture between the two parents as opposed to like you know dad goes down in the basement watches his movie and mom goes and reads her book over here it's it's a really it's like we're married we're co-workers and we're business partners all at the same time which is cool for kids to see maybe that's how it should be any advice you'd give other young farmers, particularly when we think about that work-life, family balance type of situation? It's really important to just be there at that moment and everything else can wait. And then when, when you get to the next moment, you're there and you're in it and everything else can wait. And I found that with the kids, it's just so important for, you know, we have a lot of stuff to do, you know, as moms and farmers, and, but we have to also like kind of wrap them into it in order to show them that, A, this is a lifestyle that they could get into because that's what we want, right? We want our kids to take over what we're doing. And I think if you involve them, then they'll want to take over. But then B, you show them that you respect their opinions, you respect what they're doing, and you want to be with them because they're only little for so long. I only have, you know, the teenager for a couple more years and then he'll be off doing his own thing in the world. And and the little one will be close to teenage years and, and then they're gone. And then I have the rest of my life to do this. <laughs> so I, I guess my biggest piece of advice is just to go with it, you know, like plan for the worst and hope for the best. Our thanks to Teresa Bentz of Northfield. Funding for this episode was provided by the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. A reminder, you can hear all of our Transformation podcasts online at rrfn.com forward slash transformation. You can also go to the podcast tab at linderfarmnetwork.com. As always, we'd like to remind you that help is available if you're dealing with a stressful situation. There's the Minnesota Farm and Rural Helpline, which is free, confidential, and it's available 24-7. All calls are answered by trained counselors. That helpline number is 833-600-2670, or you can text 898211. Information is also available at minnesotafarmstress.com. Until next time, I'm Don Wick.